Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 26, 2010, and my guest is Louis Menand, the Ann T. and Robert M. Bass Professor of English at Harvard University. Mr. Menand, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Nice to be here. Our subject for today is an article you wrote for The New Yorker on the state of modern psychiatry. The title of the article is Headcase, and the subtitle was Can Psychiatry Be a Science? I spent a lot of time thinking about whether economics can be a science, so the article resonated deeply with me. And you looked at a couple of recent books on psychiatry, one by Gary Greenberg, the other by Irving Kirsch. Uh, both authors argue that psychiatry is in disarray, but totally disagree with, with the reasons for that. Uh, but I want to start with a basic question, which is, uh, do we know what depression is? Is it different, as you raised the issue in the beginning of your article, is it different from being really sad in response to a life challenge? Is there such a thing as clinical depression? Uh, well, that's sort of the question at the center of a lot of these debates about um, contemporary psychiatry, and in particular about the use of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, which has been criticized really ever since it was created back in 1952, but particularly in its most recent edition, the fourth edition. And uh, the problem is that it's impossible to distinguish uh, empirically sadness over some life event, uh, death or divorce or losing your job, and uh, what you're calling clinical depression, that is depression that doesn't seem to have an exogenous uh, uh, um, reason. And uh, if you look at the brains of people who have been laid off or have some other kind of life event that makes them sad, and the brains of people who can't point to such a life event but have the same symptoms, you, you see the same kind of brains. So this raises the question of whether when patients are diagnosed as depressed by psychiatrists and prescribe some form of therapy, sometimes, of course, uh, medication, whether we're medicalizing just normal life mood changes um, and whether we should be in the business of doing that or not. And that's really what a lot of the contemporary debate about psychiatry has revolved around. Isn't there an argument to be made that we, we can't see it in the brain – um, but we know it when we see it in people's behavior. I mean, I've known people who can't get out of bed in the morning, and nothing's happened to them. There's no, there's no tragedy in their life. They didn't get laid off. They suddenly have something terribly wrong with them, and that they cannot function normally. Is, um, is that not uh, – even though we can't observe it, isn't there a case to be made that there's something clinically wrong with those folks? Absolutely. There's no question about that. The question arises from in cases where it's a little more ambiguous about why the depression is occurring. There's no question that there are cases of endogenous depression or apparently endogenous depression where uh, the, uh, some kind of intervent medical intervention, either in the form of talk therapy or medication, is uh, most people would think would be appropriate. So the question really has to do with whether we're defining that category down to 
include all kinds of other things that are either only marginally uh, connected to that kind of condition of clinical depression or actually have identifiable other causes. You know, if you if you can't get out of bed because you lost your job and you can't get out of bed, you don't know why, you still can't get out of bed. And the question is, should we treat the first case uh, the same as the second case? And what do we know about the efficacy of treatment in those two different cases? Well, there are, of course, a whole range of different uh, um, psychiatric treatments that are available to people. Uh, they seem to increase all the time. Uh, but there have been a lot of uh, studies that are comparing the efficacy of different forms of treatment. So, for example, talk therapy and um, uh, psychopharmacology medication, um, medication and cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a different form of um, of um, uh, non-medicated uh, treatment. Uh, there have been studies comparing psychoanalysis with other kinds of talk therapy, psychoanalysis with drugs, and so forth. There have been cases comparing drugs to placebos. Uh, so there have been an enormous number of studies trying to determine which type of treatment is most uh, most effective. And most of these seem to conclude that um, that they're all about equally effective or equally ineffective. This was actually something that was noted back in the 1930s by an American psychiatrist named Rosenzweig who called it the dodo bird effect, uh, referring to uh, Alice in Wonderland in which the dodo bird says everybody has won and all must have prizes. So the idea is that if you compare any kind of pretty much any kind of um, psychiatric treatment, pretty much everybody comes out about the same. So it's very hard to say that one form is better than another. Maybe the case for particular patients that one type is better than another, and everybody knows that probably that different kinds of antidepressants are more or less effective depending on the person. Some people have to try three or four to find one that works. But there's actually no evidence that talk therapy is better or worse than, um, than taking Prozac. Uh, or the cognitive behavioral therapy is better or better or worse. Well, I guess if you're a talk therapist, talk therapy is better than Prozac. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> if you're an English professor, English is better than sociology. But, wow. you know, it's a little bit like that. Um, it's it, it, there, One interesting study that has been, or type of test that has been performed in various times, this, these all go back into the 1940s. This isn't something that's just happened in the field. One interesting test that seems to be uh, repeatable is that people do equally well, depressed people, people with sort of outpatient type people do equally well either just talking to sympathetic professors who don't have any training in psychiatry or talking to licensed psychotherapists. It's, that is, there's something about the, for a depressed person or an anxious person or a person with a mood disorder, simply talking to somebody who seems to care and empathize that makes them feel better. And the particular training the person has or doesn't have doesn't seem to be particularly important. Well, my my great-grandmother, uh, who I never met, on my father's side, I think it was my great-grandmother, uh, according to my dad, used to say that if, you don't, if you're not in a good mood, go out and talk to a rock. That's a more, uh, I think that's an that was a it was probably in Yiddish the expression and it, it's folk wisdom from Eastern Europe um, and it may be that's all you really need you don't even need the empathy you just need to talk uh, but when you say they do equally well uh, is the glass half full or half empty um, you know when I think back on you know older periods of of how we treated people who were quote insane. I'm not sure what that means either. It's insane is a lot like depressed to me. I'm, I'm not. I don't think they have a clear definition. Although 
I think in the extreme cases, we know we know it when we see it. Um, you know, we tried shock therapy. It didn't work terribly well, grotesque in, in many cases. Uh, now we we use medication, <clears throat> which has supplanted to some extent talking and listening. But do any of these work? You say they all work sort of equally well. Do, how well do they work? They don't work that well. I mean, that's part of the mystery of the whole thing is that um, they their effectiveness rates are fifty or sixty percent. I mean, I'm sort of pulling that out of my hat. I'm not. I couldn't refer to you a specific study, but you know, they they're you know they're relatively effective, but they're not 100 percent effective. In fact, in the case of shock therapy, it's it's one of the most effective treatments for people with major depression. And part of the, it's called ECT. And part of the reason that it's not used uh, prominently anymore is because it got very bad. Uh, press, um, you know, people were, uh, things like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, movies like that, uh, made people feel that it was sort of some Frankenstein's monster quality to it. But actually, for people with severe depression, it's actually been, been fairly effective. Nobody even knows why. Nobody knows exactly what it does, but it seems to work. Um, but yeah, there are, um, all these things are, you know, effective at the margin. There's not, there's not um, a panacea for this, for that kind of condition. And that's despite the fact that, of course, for some individuals, pharmaceuticals or therapy, talk therapy, can change their lives for the better. And 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 yeah. it just we don't know exactly who should get what and and how, and we don't understand the process. Yeah, but it's not you know this part of this. I mean, the article that you mentioned that I wrote uh, begins by listing at great length. Uh, and it could have been much longer, all of the criticisms that people have made of psychiatry as a medical science. But in the end, it's like most medical science. It kind of deals with a lot of black boxes. It's very hard to really understand what's going on, and we know certain things seem to work better than other things, and we try those things out, but it's you know, never 100% sure. Um, now, in the case of psychiatry, because there's a, what you're treating is pe- part, partly people's conscious life, it's much trickier, obviously, to figure out what's going on and try to fix it, and you're dealing with a patient who's consciously involved in the process of repairing their own conscious life, um, and that makes it even more complicated. But the fact that it's that all these treatments are only more or less effective doesn't, doesn't mean that they're not worth uh, pursuing. Now, it reminds me a lot of economics, right? You have a complex system, the economy, and in the case of economics, in the case of psychiatry, you have the brain. And as you say, there's this conscious effort going on in the background with whatever therapy you're trying, whether it's uh, pharmacology or pharmacological or or um, talking. And uh, so you can't hold everything constant uh, that you'd like to to assess whether fiscal policy or monetary policy has an impact and how big the impact is and – there's all kinds of other stuff going on, so it's inherently um, difficult to assess. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know as much about much about economics, but I think there's also a self-fulfilling prophecy aspect to psychiatric treatment, which is that if people feel that they're going to get better, they tend to get better. So a lot of it has to do with the patient buying into the into the particular claims of the treatment, and that's been shown by the effectiveness of placebos in various kinds of drug trials that. People think they're taking an antidepressant, even though it's a sugar pill. They will often feel better and report that they have, uh, that their symptoms are better. Yeah, talk about that critique of Kirsch's. Uh, Kirsch claims this is Irving Kirsch uh, in one of the books you you reviewed. Kirsch claims that the overwhelming ma- impact in terms of magnitude of of antidepressant drugs is is placebos, and the claim that is the placebo effect. And the way I understood this is that. 
since as the patient, you know that if you've got the real thing, you get you get side effects potentially. So if you experience these side effects, you're then convinced you're not on the placebo, you're on the real drug, and that is the impact that the um, that that self fulfilling prophecy part is what makes you better, not the drug itself. It, it's a hard claim to accept. I'm sympathetic to the cleverness of it, and to the point that there isn't—you know—there's going to be an offset. Is it really plausible that 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 the magnitudes are explained by that that self-fulfilling prophecy? Is there some empirical support for that? And what are the defenders of of psychopharmacology? What the, what are the, what's their response? So this book by Karsh is called The Emperor's New Drugs. Uh, Karsh has been doing these what's called meta-analyses, which are basically analyses of multiple different drug tests um, uh, to kind of summarize their, synthesize their findings uh, for about, I guess, about 12 or 13 years. Um, when he first started doing this, his methods were um, severely criticized by people uh, within the profession um, for statistical um, uh, errors and uh, just general unreliability. He claims that he has, um, you know, perfected his statistical methods and that meta-analyses, which were pretty uncommon and dismissed 12 or 13 years ago, are now more common in the field. And it's true, there are lots more of them. I don't know whether they are more reliable now than they used to be. But he claims that what his meta-analyses show, this is your question I'm getting to, is that um, drug in drug trials, uh, testing a new antidepressant against placebo um, most of the time, the placebo will do as well as the antidepressant. In the cases where the placebo outperforms the antidepressant, and that means, of course, having a, an outcome which is statistically greater than could be attributed to chance, um, and it's, that could be a fairly small difference. Um, he thinks that that's a result of a similar placebo effect, which is the one you described, which means that the patients on the, in the trial taking the real medication experience side effects and therefore they interpret their side effects as evidence that they're taking real medication and therefore the, they feel better uh, than the people taking a sugar pill who don't experience side effects and therefore conclude that they're not taking the real medication. Um, this is, this, Kirsch's conclusions have been criticized a lot. I don't know specifically the more recent attacks on his methodology or on his conclusions. Um, it, it does seem to be a bit of a stretch to claim that in every case, in which a medication outperforms a sugar pill, it's just a it's just a, a placebo effect of the kind that he described. Now he does talk about other cases where uh, patients have been made to feel better because they're persuaded that the drugs they're taking will be effective. Um, besides antidepressants, and you know, there's clearly a literature on this stuff, but I can't really speak to the validity of the of his claim. They, it does seem rather sweeping, uh, and it also does seem to be the case that patients just do get better on this uh, on some of these medications. There was a recent meta-analysis that was published in the JAMA, um, I think last fall or maybe even in January of this year, um, which was a meta-analysis of antidepressants and made the conclusion that for patients with mild depression or kind of normal outpatient depression, um, placebos were just as good as as antidepressants. Although for patients with severe depression or major depression, um, antidepressants actually had a significantly um, better uh, effect than uh, than placebos. Now that's an odd study for a couple of reasons. One is that they only test used one 
antidepressant in the test, which was Paxil, um, and there are about 25 antidepressants on the market. So it really wasn't a claim about antidepressants as a category. It was just a claim about this particular drug. It was a very small sample size, although it was a meta-analysis taking many different um, studies into account. I think there were only about 700 patients in the meta-analysis, and of course there are millions of people who've used these drugs. And then finally, the claim that it works on severely depressed patients but doesn't work on mildly depressed patients is very hard to square because the claim would have to be that affecting brain chemistry, which is what these drugs are supposed to do, doesn't really do anything for you. But if it does it for you, if you have major depression, then it obviously affecting brain chemistry yeah. does something. Yeah, now it's the black box problem that right. we don't understand the underlying right. mechanism. But the, but the point about patients responding positively if they think they're getting something that works, it you know it reminds me of this apocryphal, I assume, apocryphal story. I've heard it told about Enrique Fermi. I'm sure it's been told about other people. You know, a student comes into Fermi's office and he's surprised to see that Fermi has a horseshoe over his door. And he says, the student says, Professor Fermi, you, you, don't, you don't believe in that, do you? He says, of course not. He said, but they say it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs> and, you know, this idea that, you know, if God forbid you had something really um, debilitating psychologically going on, so you, should, you can take a, a white a sugar pill, but if someone gives you a lot of fancy uh, explanations of how this will make the black box, you know, function better, they lay into the black box and they give you this totally bogus, but you believe it, theory of why it's going to make you better, that it will make you better. It's a really extraordinary thing. Well, psychoanalysis is a classic case. I mean, I don't think anybody, very few people, which should say not anybody, very <laughs> few people accept the premises of Freudian psychoanalysis, but it was used for years. And yeah, sure, there are probably famous cases where it didn't do anybody any good and they spent years and lots of dollars, but obviously people felt better. And the black box theory, the, what was going on in your brain theory, has been completely discarded by the profession, but it seemed to work for people. Well, I want to turn to Freud. Uh, you use... First, talk about what happened to Freud within the profession, uh, the clinical aspect of it, because I want to, again, make an analogy to, to economics. Uh, what happened to Freud's uh, presence in, in the discipline? Yeah, it was a funny thing because it was sort of a delayed reaction. I, I, this is just my interpretation of, of the history of uh, psychiatry, and, and um, there are probably other things going on. But what happened was that in the 1950s, uh, Freudianism was very well established in medical schools so that when um, medical students got whatever kind of training or coursework they did in psychiatry was run by psychoanalysts. Um, psychoanalysts were uh, mainly had smaller private practices. They were not really in the big mental hospitals. Uh, those psychiatrists were not, tended not to be psychoanalytically inclined in their practice, but it was dominant a dominant presence in medical schools. That finally went out uh, in the 60s and 70s. Um, there's a good book by Joel Paris about this called Fall of an Icon, which is about the transformation of medical training in psychiatry. But it was, what's kind of funny from, so my interpretation of it is what makes it kind of funny is that in the 1950s, psychoanalysis had a great deal of cultural cachet. Did, yeah. And Freud was thought to be this person who had really unlocked secrets of the mind and so forth, both by medical people and also in the popular culture. Uh, this was also the period, though, when the first uh, really major blockbuster mood disorder drugs went on the market, Milltown, um, uh, and then Equinal. These are uh, anxiolytics, anti-anxiety drugs uh, in the 
1950s, and then in the 60s, Librium and Valium, which were enormously popular drugs, and which were basically does did what antidepressants do now, which is to change brain chemistry. And by changing brain chemistry, for a lot of people, got rid of the symptoms of anxiety, as changing brain chemistry for a lot of people today gets rid of symptoms of depression and also anxiety. Um, but the acceptance of these um, of these drugs, like Miltown, uh, was not considered to contradict the claims of Freudian theory. Now, in Freudian theory, it's not brain chemistry that's causing you to be anxious. Right, it's, it's, inter, it's inner psychic conflict, right? Yeah. Um, your but childhood, for some reason, your, sorry? Your childhood, your, yeah. your, the way you were raised, some experience that traumatized you. Exactly. It's personal history, right? It's something that you've repressed. And so this psychic conflict has to be brought to the consciousness and, you know, through psychoanalytic, psychoanalytic treatment. That, that has, that's completely contradicted by the idea you could take a pill that would do the same thing. But for some reason, it wasn't until the late 60s that, um, that people within the profession began pointing out that there was an enormous disjunction between the premises of psychoanalysis and the premises of psychopharmacology. And finally, by 1980, in a famous article called Anxiety Reconceptualized by Donald Klein, the profession kind of weaned itself from Freud. So the first two editions of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 52 and 68, were very influenced by Freud, and they pointed out that anxiety and psychic conflict were at the root of most uh, mood disorders. By 1980, when the third edition was made, Freud was really scrubbed completely out of the manual, and today there's almost no evidence of Freudian vocabulary or Freudian assumptions in the DSM. So the the profession really revolutionized itself uh, between the 60s and the 80s and came to adopt a completely different view of, um, of psychiatric practice. Not just the biologizing of psychiatry, which, which of course is the main thing that happened, but also just the idea of what forms of talk therapy would be effective. So, of course, there's still psychoanalysts around and people who are very influenced by psychoanalytic theory, but in general, the profession has, uh, has tried to distance itself from Freud. Well, it reminds me a little bit of economics because uh, Freud is a little bit touchy-feely in the sense that you, they've never really uh, – no surgeon has found the id uh, you know, or the superego. So there's a certain uh, embarrassing aspect of Freudianism that, that is unavoidable. And the biologization, as you say, or you, I, you know, the – brain chemistry is much more scientific and so it has a, a natural appeal in the competition among scientists. It reminds me in economics of the attempt to make economics more mathematical as if that makes it more rigorous uh, because we're using the tools of what we know as a rigorous science. And it, as we pointed out earlier, the, the problem with psychiatry is they haven't, they, haven't really, they haven't opened the black box. There must be some people working on that black box. Do you know anything about that? Are they making any progress? <laughs> I'm not an expert in, in what's going on right now, but um, it's true that uh, psychoanalysis now looks, um, as you put put it, rather touchy-feely or rather fuzzy as a science, but of course Freud thought of it as a science, uh, thought of it as a medical science. That was his training. That's what he thought he was doing. Uh, he thought he was really describing stuff that goes on in the mind, um, and he was describing it um, as a scientist, as a biologist, not, not just as a kind of talk therapist. Um, but now, of course, we think that it's, you know, that there's nothing in the mind that corresponds to these categories that Freud created in order to explain what how patients behave. Um, this, but the same thing is true to some extent, as far as I understand it, of the biological model, which is, I think most people have the rough idea that depression is caused by a lack of serotonin. 
um, and that if you take a SSRI, serotonin, um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, then you are freeing up more serotonin or you have more serotonin in your neurotransmitters and you'll feel better. But actually, as I understand it, no medical scientist actually thinks that that's what that's what causes depression or that's what fixes depression. You can give, you can actually give people serotonin and it doesn't make them feel any better. So there's clearly something happens. It's the horseshoe. Yeah, <laughs> sort of, yeah. It, doesn't, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem, it's not, that, it's not that people need more serotonin exactly, but there's some kind of cascade effect that apparently seems to be that's created in the brain when you use these chemicals like Prozac, fluoxetine, which target uh, serotonin, Inhibitors or serotonin reuptake uh, 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 processes in the in the brain, and it's not that alone apparently that causes people to feel better when they feel better. But there's some it tr- seems to trigger some series of other events in the brain that we don't really understand um, that yet uh, that cause this positive outcome. So even the medical model, it, it, there's a lot of black boxes in that as well. It's not really, and it's not a whole lot better than, than Freud's model, um, except that you, you know you can now do brain scans and you can actually see things like shrinking hippocampi, which are one symptom of depression and things like that. So people have a, um, a romance about science and sometimes social science, and certainly about medicine and, and psychiatry that, that we're making progress. That the changes in say treatments are, are the result of careful study. And one of the things you learn from reading uh, your article or from listening to this program with respect to economics is that there's a lot of other stuff going on and it's not quite perhaps as scientific as we'd like. And there are, there are fads, for example. Uh, there's the issue of, say, mathematics or in this case of, of, of psychiatry, the pharmaceutical part, uh, making it feel more scientific. But there's also... Again, economics and psychiatry have a parallel that that you'd explore in the psychiatry side in your article, which is money and self-interest and the benefits that that people get from uh, a belief that there's a certain causal relationship, say, between X and Y. Uh, You talk about this in the article, particularly with relation to uh, Greenberg's work, Gary Greenberg, who worries about the role that pharmaceutical profits play in distorting – what is received wisdom. And I also want to bring in uh, the work of Thomas Zaz, who you don't mention, but Zaz has been very critical of psychopharmacology because it's been used by the state, particularly communist countries, but but not just communist countries, to control its citizens, uh, justifying it on the basis of science, but it's really fake science and it's serving self-interest. Talk about Greenberg's critique of of the state of knowledge of, of pharmaceuticals and uh, and what's worrisome about perhaps the role of money. Yeah, Greenberg's book is called Manufacturing Depression, and you describe it accurately, which is he's deeply skeptical um, uh, of the claims of psychiatry to be a science, and he does attribute the popularity of those claims and the proliferation of those claims essentially to a desire to make money. I mean, I think he's pretty, it's, he's a very elegant writer, and it's, there's, it's not that his book is crude, but he, I think he has a pretty straightforward diagnosis of the situation, which is that people figured out that if you could persuade people that, that their moods were diseases and that you, some chemical that you had put into a pill would make them feel better, uh, you could make a lot of money. Uh, now, Greenberg's book is about depression, and his claim is that uh, we have lots of good reasons to feel depressed about the state of the world, uh, and that um, 
industry and capitalism have uh, tried to persuade us that it's not really the world that's the problem. The problem is just brain chemistry. So if we just take these little pills, then we'll all put smiley faces on and we'll be able to uh, ignore the problems with the environment and with corruption and politics and so forth. So that's generally, I would say that's generally, it's again, maybe a little little more crudely than he puts it, but that's generally the argument of the book. Um, The size thing is a little bit different because uh, that has more to do with the use of uh, diagnoses as a way of uh, categorizing and um, uh, ultimately uh, marginalizing. Controlling people. Yeah, yeah, controlling people, certain personality types or certain attitudes that the state uh, society it, finds repugnant. But it's similar in the sense that, that people are being manipulated through their lack of knowledge through the system uh, by people who have a self-interest, whether it's, whether it's people in power or people in, who are profiting from it. That they're distorting the um, the culture and the the norms and the uh, and the incentives that people are facing. Uh, right. it, it's a fascinating and depressing. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. makes you want to take something. Um, you, you know, the earlier point about the world versus uh, your brain chemistry. You know, we don't just, of course, see this in depression. You don't talk about this in the article, but uh, the use of um, pharmaceuticals on children. It has exploded, in particular, school children who are, um, say, having some sort of ADD, uh, attention deficit disorder. And, you know, as you were describing Greenberg's critique, it reminds me of, you can say the same thing about attention deficit disorder. It's hard to pay attention to stuff that's boring. Kids' minds wander. Uh, that's normal. And so it's a matter of degree as to who is clinically uh, having a deficit disorder problem. And the um, medication, the medicating of those children has had, has had an, an unknown effect, certainly a large effect on those kids, both I'm sure good and bad, and an enormous effect on the profits of the, of the companies who, who design those drugs. Yeah. Um, it's a fascinating question as to whether that's a good thing or not, yeah. and I don't think we know. Yeah, it's also part of this diagnosing disability down thing that we're talking about, which is that the bar for diagnosis is much, much lower um, because the medications are easily available. The key player in all this is the insurance industry because the reason we have the DSM is because it provides clinical categories for diagnosis. If you can show your insurer that a doctor has prescribed a medication based on one of the diagnoses, diagnostic numbers in the DSM, then your insurance company will likely pay for some of it or all of it. If the insurance companies backed out of that business, then I think you would see a lot less diagnosis. Um, so, yeah. so that's part of the cycle of this whole thing. And then, um, and that in turn, the, that in turn is partly driven by the legal environment, the fear of of being sued for misdiagnosis or. You know, it's the DSM is a very attractive way for doctors and insurance companies to insulate themselves because they're quote following best practices, even if those best practices are nonsense. Yeah. So the whole and the whole thing is driven by, as you put it, it's driven by every every entity from the drug industry to the insurance industry to the medical profession, basically supporting each other in this in this system. And it's, so it's very hard to break out of the system because everybody has a stake in in its uh, success. And that's the kind of thing that Greenberg is particularly uh, distressed about. Well, you say everyone has a stake. You know, uh, the one person you might want to, we, w- we would want to fa- focus on is the person putting the 
pill in their mouth, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and what I find fascinating about this, you know, I I have four kids. Uh, my wife's a school teacher. We have lots of friends of school age children, and and we hear the issues that come up with with respect to th- to these questions of of various forms of behavioral challenges for kids. You know, this as you say that not only do you get, as you point out in the article, not only do you get uh, a, a dumbing down of an expansion of the category, you get a multiplication of the number of subsets within the category. So you don't just have ADD, you have ADHD, and you have all these different variations, various syndromes in the case of of, of psychiatry, mood problems, depression, et cetera. But you know, the, if you're if you're a parent whose kids are struggling, uh, you're pretty desperate to do something to help them. And you'd like to believe that your doctor knows. Your doctor has evidence. And when the doctor prescribes, people think, well, uh, scientific, it's medicine. But it's not. And you know, my view on this is that you know, I'm a, def- a defender of markets and, and, and economic freedom. It's disturbing to me to think about people being somehow manipulated uh, for profit without somehow them figuring it out and, and choosing otherwise. So I'm naturally looking for the incentives within the system that might distort the natural choices. But fundamentally, uh, it, it fascinates me how willing people are to, to give up their autonomy and their autonomy of their kids to experts who, in this, as we've been talking about for the last half hour, don't know very much. Yeah. Well, I, 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 that's true, though. And, it, I would, and it's subsidized, of course, as you point out, which makes it easier to swallow, so to speak. Right. But so, the, so first, the patient does have a stake in it to the extent that the remedy is available and the insurance company will cover it. Um, you might as well try it. Uh, but secondly, it is a science. It's just that science is, is you know, not so much better than anything else that we use. So, so it's not that it's not scientific, and it's not that there isn't something really you know, going on with the medication and the symptoms. It's just that we don't know a whole lot about how it works. We don't know a whole lot about how effective it's going to be. We don't know what the long-term consequences are. I mean, it's not not a science. It's just that science doesn't have all the answers either. Yeah, I think there's, you know, obviously there's a a disconnect between the way the scientists themselves discuss their work, the way it gets discussed in the media, and the way people perceive it. Those are all uh, three very different things. Uh, We have a certain romance about Science that is, um, and medicine and social science that's not really justified. Right, but I think nobody has a bigger romance than the critics of of, of uh, medical science because they think if we call it science, it has to have all the answers. It's not science unless, for example, the symptoms uh, that a patient reports in psychiatric treatment can be traced to an underlying organic cause. We can't do that with most symptoms. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't treat them. It doesn't mean it's not scientific. It's just making the best guess about uh, whether this thing is a disorder that can be treated by medication or not. So it's, I think that, I mean, I feel that way about Greenberg's book in particular. He just expects too much of science, particularly medical science, and particularly medical science dealing with people's minds. Uh, there's only so much that science, the scientific approach can do for us. It's very good, as you point out, for people to be aware of that and not to assume that it's all been figured out and everybody knows what they're doing. They don't, we don't really know what we're doing. Of course, based on earlier points, you probably it's better to be fooled. It's, it's the hardest. Well, that's the, thing about, that's the <laughs> thing about the mind, and I think it's probably true from behavioral point of view and economic behavior as well, right, that a lot of it is, a lot of it is people think it's going to happen, um, 
in a particular situation. Well, I'm not so sure about that, but there is a strong there is a belief out there that that's true in economics. I think it's a little harder. Mm-hmm. Like all these things, it's it's hard to to show whether that's true or just a interesting yeah. uh, thought. Uh, but one thing that there's a darker side to this that, that we haven't talked about, and that and you don't. I didn't. I don't think it's in the article, which is. Like you say, I like your point that you know we have to be realistic about what science can and cannot do. It's not, it's not, um, it's not magic. It doesn't work a hundred percent of the time. There's variation. There's there's complexity, and and that's just unavoidable. And a good scientist recognizes that. But there's also a negative side. It's one thing to say, well, it doesn't work all the time. But of course, sometimes it doesn't just not work. It makes the problem worse. Um, or it has subtler effects. We'll get to the subtler effects toward the end of our conversation. But I, I want to just first focus on the on the outright negative. What kind of evidence do we have that it's not only that some of these things are just ineffective, but but dangerous? Yeah, this is something I'm not qualified or competent to to tell you definitively about. But there's a man, a Welsh psychiatrist named David Healy, who's written a number of books, uh, many books, in fact, on the history of psychiatry, who has come to believe that there are important uh, bad side effects of uh, of um, antidepressants, in particular Paxil, um, that uh, are being suppressed and that uh, they can cause suicidality, particularly in younger patients and so forth. And that's been a pretty persistent... It's a bad side effect. Yeah, that's a bad side right, effect. Right, nausea, one thing. Suicidality, bad. Not right. good. No. So that's been around since since Prozac was licensed in, I think, 1987 or 1988. Um, and uh, that's been a claim that's been much debated by people within the field. Peter Kramer, who wrote the book Listening to Prozac, which is one of the, you know, I actually think a great book and one of the books that really started to explore all the ramifications of these kinds of medication, um, claimed that the, that the claims about um, really negative side effects uh, were exaggerated or not uh, or were baseless, but Healy has come to believe the opposite, and he's now kind of gone on a crusade to try to expose the uh, suppression of uh, of uh, evidence of side effects by the pharmaceutical industry. You know, you pharmaceutical industry runs its own drug tests, uh, and even the ones that the, the, the FDA basically is supposed to be doing are paid for by the drug industry, and the drug industry does not have to report negative outcomes in their trials for new medication. They only have to come up with two positive trials for the drug to be licensed. So the question is, where's all this other data? What does the other data show? What's being suppressed? What do we really know about these tests of new drugs? And so it's an area of great controversy and, I would think, concern. That's one of the things that happened with the anxiolytics, the anti-anxiety drugs in the 50s and 60s, is it was you know, thalidomide was actually prescribed as a sedative. Um, And then people realized what the side effects were. And and you also talk about I mean that was a dramatic case, but the but the other anxiety reducers, uh, uh, Valium, um, Librium, Librium, they turned out to be addictive. Right now, I guess one view would say, well, that's okay, <laughs> it's good because what could be better than being addicted to something that makes you feel good? Yeah. Uh, what's the harm of that addiction? What is the harm? I don't know. Yeah. Well, one question is, does it keep making you feel good or you just have to take it or you suffer withdrawal? Um, you know, these drugs, most drugs like this, you know, have a limited effectiveness. Uh, if you keep taking them, they stop working on you. But if you then stop taking them and have withdrawal pains, then, you know, then you really are addicted. And that's what happens with those, with Valium and Librium. And that, and when people think addictive, they think bad. 
So if you tell somebody, I'll give you an antidepressant and we'll make your depression go away, but you can't go off it um, without suffering withdrawal. I can't fix your withdrawal pain, so you'll have to keep taking it forever. People won't want to take it. I think people don't like the idea that they're dependent on a drug. I mean, if you're in extreme pain and so forth. But to get over depression or mood disorder, I think people don't like the idea that they're going to be a hostage to uh, to a medicine. Well, we're going to come back to that. But, I, you know, we don't feel that way about a heart drug. No. You know, if I said, you know, I'm sorry, you got a cholesterol problem, and for the rest of your life, you got to take this drug, yeah. you shrug. And if, if it were a, a financial, you know, a backbreaker, you, you might be upset about it and try to find exercise or other ways to do it. But if it's not too expensive or someone else is paying for it, hey, yeah. that's not so bad. But somehow our brains are different. It's true. But it's also like uh, I take um, um, whatever the generic Lipitor is, statin, uh, for cholesterol, right? I take it every day. I don't think that I'm uh, dependent on the drug, though if I stop taking it, you know, I might suffer uh, the consequences of high cholesterol. But it's not addictive in the sense that if I stop taking it, I'll suffer withdrawal. Right, so yeah, if I stop taking point. it, I won't feel bad. Yeah. Um, so I think people feel I can't. If I stop taking my meds, I'll feel sick. Uh, that's that. That's part of what makes them feel leery of uh, of those kinds of drugs. Well, I, I want to ask one more question about the science issue, and then I I want to turn to uh, a, a different. Well, I want to shift gears. We'll talk about authenticity, which which is what we're on the edge of right here. Um, well, the science question I want to ask is. You make a great point that you know we shouldn't ask too much of science, and I think in the abstract that's that's true. We have to be realistic about what science can do. I think the the deeper issue and the more troubling issue is this question of whether the data and our understanding of what works and doesn't work is being distorted in some way, either by a profit motive that's being distorted by, say, uh, the way that that we've set up the incentives for people to paying for drugs with other people's money or the legal environment. Uh, you, you can be a friend of capitalism or an enemy and, and still see both – you can still see this as a not-so-healthy thing. But for me, the issue there, – there's a big underlying psychological issue that gets it. some work you've done. You, you wrote a book in 2001 that I've just started, uh, so I can't talk about it explicitly, but you can, I hope, which is the Metaphysical Club. And you talk about Charles Peirce in there, and I've mentioned Peirce on the program before – Peirce was a pragmatist. Peirce was a philosopher, an American philosopher, who was skeptical about the role of reason and the objectivity of reason. He understood, the way I understand Peirce anyway, that, that biases and, and self-deception were, were part of the way we misperceive the world around us and we shouldn't be overconfident. Uh, is, do you see that playing a role in the way psychiatry has evolved? I see it in economics all the time, uh, and it, it resonated again with me in your discussion of psychiatry. What were you thinking about in the case of economics? Well, in economics, people convince themselves that their statistical analysis is right. Yeah. Uh, in, your, in the case of psychiatry, for example, and so there's a ton of, uh, I believe that the objectivity of, of, of econometric analysis in the case of economics is oversold. Um, and those listeners out there will remember our conversations with Ed Lemer and, and others that we've done on this topic. Um, there are both, again, People for the sake of reputation, ideological bias, uh, or pure self-interest in terms of profiting from it will distort empirical work either in how they present it or they'll convince themselves that they've done it objectively when, in fact, they, they haven't. And, I, you know, for example, um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, you, you mentioned one author of the, two, of the two books you reviewed thinks it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, and the other author thinks it's a total waste of time. Worse than that, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Is it harmful even? Mind control, yeah. Yeah. So uh, what do you think? uh, Do you think purse has some relevance for this? Yeah. So, yeah, the pragmatic view that purse is associated with, and also William James, John Dewey, uh, does does assume that um, human beings uh, pursue knowledge for interested reasons. And those interests can be uh, can be you know purely materialistic, or they can be idealistic. But there's a reason why they're pursuing the knowledge, and they have certain assumptions and certain goals in mind, even as they begin their empirical inquiry. And that's true of empirical studies as as much as it is of literary criticism or anything else that we try to figure out. We're figuring it out for a reason. We have a bias. Uh, we want a, a certain kind of outcome, or we hope for a certain kind of outcome. We have an idea of what we're looking for, what we would expect to find. And that's just in the nature of being human. Um, so Peirce's particular belief about this was that no single individual, therefore, can possibly have anything like an objective view of any subject that he studies, including things like, you know, knowing the position of a star. Uh, Everybody's going to perceive that star slightly differently, even using the same instrumentation. But in the aggregate, uh, if you take the sum of all possible perspectives, you can get an average, which is roughly the way things are. So what you want, Percival, was to have enough uh, inquirers inquiring into the same subject, each from a particular biased and partial and limited point of view, in order to get enough takes on it such that you could kind of in aggregate figure out you know, where the accurate picture was likely to be. You wouldn't expect any single observer to have that picture, but you would expect the average of all observers' pictures to be roughly the right picture. Um, and I think that's, you know, that should be how science works, it seems to me, is that you want to have lots of input, um, assuming that no single input is going to be the answer in order to get, for us to get kind of an idea of where the right answer might lie. Yeah, the, the problem is, is that the average isn't really, I think, the right um it, it sound, that also sounds kind of scientific, but of course, the alternative interpretation, and this, by the way, is very Hayekian. Um, my professor of philosophy at the University of North Carolina, um, Richard Smythe, was a Peirce scholar. And uh, 30 years after I took the class, uh, I called him up and I asked him if he'd ever read any Hayek. And he said, well, of course I have, because this idea that Wisdom is is in the marketplace of ideas rather than in any one person's brain is very very Hayekian. Yeah. Um, oh, it's very it's very it corresponds very well to nineteenth century laissez faire thought. There's no question about it. It's but, a, yeah, the average will produce the optimal outcome. But the problem is is that as Lemur has pointed out, econometrician at, at UCLA, you can take the same data set uh, if you're trying to investigate whether the death penalty uh, deters murder. If you're a, uh, if you favor that argument, you can show reasonably that for every execution, you deter 30 murders. If you don't like the death penalty, you take the same data set, use a different specification, choose slightly different variables, and you can show that it actually causes 12 murders every execution. So his conclusion isn't take the average. His conclusion, which I think is the correct one in this case, and there may be other cases where average some sort of consensus might emerge through competition of ideas, but Lieber's conclusion is uh, the data don't let us answer the question. And I think that really is the fundamental question for these um, th- these these treatments of depression. I'm not sure we, we, we can know. I think it's true in the state of knowledge, as I understand it, as a layman, but reading some of this, uh, some of this uh, scientific literature, I think the state of knowledge we have now does not permit us to infer sort of a right answer to the questions that we're asking. And 
another another point is that which I think you're alluding to is that science is never going to answer the fundamental questions about our autonomy and our authenticity and choices that we make in life. Those aren't questions that we can expect medical science to answer or even want them to answer. Yeah, I want to let, – let's turn to that because I love what you wrote there. Um, you you created a, a person who's dealing with grief, perhaps a loss of a loved one or, or a real tragedy, uh, and you, you imagine the possibility of a pill you could take. You called it a grief pill. So you take the pill and instead of going through this six-month period of struggling to get up in the morning and not – focusing on what you really ought to be doing on your job. Um, instead, you just get over it in a day. Uh, you're done. You're fine. You're back to normal. And would you take the pill? And so talk about the pluses and minuses of taking that pill and what, where you stand on it. Uh, I've asked a lot of people that question, if you could take this pill. Uh, and the idea would be that you, in six months you're going to feel better anyway. Um, you doesn't mean that you will have loved the person less or cared less about losing them, but you won't feel the you know, the insomnia or the depression or... The hollow in the pit of your stomach. You know, yeah, just, all, that, all the physical symptoms of bereavement you won't, you won't feel, but you'll still... It's not that you won't honor the person who died. So that's, you have to sort of accept that premise, otherwise the thought experiment doesn't really work. And most people would say they wouldn't take the pill. And then, but the question is, why? Um, and I think people feel that there's... There's several answers that people give, but people feel in general that we are creatures that grieve. And there's and it's just part of life, and that there's somehow something wrong, even at a biological level, with trying to short circuit this natural process of bereavement. We do tend to get over it. I mean, there's something called complicated grief, which does you know then trigger medical intervention. But basically, we do get over it, or we get over it enough to go on with our lives um, without thinking about it all the time. But that there's some reason why we're creatures who do this, and we ought to therefore allow ourselves to do it. Now, there are other people who have more specific reasons for not not wanting to take a pill if such a pill existed, having to do with the idea that the period of bereavement is still a period of connection with the lost person, um, that you're, in thinking about the person, even in an extremely unhappy way, you're maintaining that person's still part of your life, and that you're maintaining that. If you were to take the pill and lose that physical set of symptoms of grief, you would, in a way, be losing that person again, and they don't want to do that. That's an interesting uh, answer. Um, but there's also a way in which it's not completely obvious why that is out of bounds for people, but people would use all kinds of other chemical enhancers from obvious stuff like caffeine to more complicated stuff like SSRIs to deal with, you know, what are basically life problems. Um, people do, we do use chemistry all the time uh, to affect our moods, uh, but there are some things that we think are out of bounds to chemistry, and grief seems to be one of them. In fact, it is the only category in the DSM that's excluded from the uh, diagnosis of depression. If you have the symptoms of depression but you're grieving, then you're not supposed to be clinically depressed. And I, my understanding is in the DSM-5, which is the edition supposed to come out in a couple of years, they've actually gotten rid of that exception <laughs> so that you now can be diagnosed with depression even if you're suffering a period of grieving um, and, therefore, and therefore given a, given a uh, prescription. A good time to buy uh, stock in um, Eli Lilly and Burke. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so that's, that's so, yeah. But part of my understanding about it, and this again, I'm just speaking based on having read a few books, is that is that there's not a lot of new dr drugs in the pipeline. So what tends to happen is they tweak the molecule, give it a new brand name, and then you know they have a copyright on it for a certain period of time when they can make enormous 
profits, and then it goes generic, and they have to sort of tweak it again. So it's not altogether clear that they've got you know some wonder drugs in the pipeline. Uh, in spite of claims about all the money that's uh, the, that the pharmaceutical industry pours back into research and development, there actually doesn't seem to be that much certain development recently. But I'm, again, not an expert on this, but having read some books about it. Well, so that's I think, a big question to mark is what's the future of that industry, which was doing fantastically for the last 15 or 20 years. Yeah, and no, I, I think they spend a lot on, on the research and development side. Obviously, what they choose to spend the money on is going to be, unfortunately, partly determined by factors other than what works best. It's what's subsidized, and it's really, I think, a, a very messy system that uh, – Let's we'll put that to the side, but this uh, this more fundamental question. I I think part of the, the there's a analogous story we've mentioned on the program before that Robert Nozick brought up called the Experience Machine, where you would hook yourself up to this machine, and while you were hooked up to it, you could fulfill any fantasy you wanted. You could be uh, you could win the Masters to to pick a one. I always hear people talk about you know you could be a great athlete, you could be a rock star, you could cure cancer. Or you could be a surfing dude in you know um, in, in Hawaii, and while you're on the machine, it feels real. It passes in real time. You're actually on the, only on the machine for a few instants, but uh, maybe a few minutes is the way I remember it. And then they unplug you, but you're dead. So you feel like you've you feel like you've led this full life, and you've done these incredible things. You've had this great emotional response, but it's not real. And some people would hook themselves up to it, and some people wouldn't. But one factor I think. That that is you know is is in the background, analogous somewhat to the natural part. You know, some people wouldn't hook themselves up to it because quote it's not natural, just like they would they want to go through the grief because that's what that's natural. But I think there's a religious element to it as well. It's a certain if you're a religious person, there's a certain there's a feeling that God has a certain path for you, and by avoiding the grief or by hooking up to yourself to the machine, you've not just cheated yourself. You've you've betrayed. Your purpose in life, uh, and whether people inform that with a God view or, or 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 some other, you know, natural feeling about it, there's something about that inauthenticity to it that I think people are very troubled by. I, I am, for example, but I I'm religious, but I think uh, for non-religious people, this this goal of authenticity is is very real, despite the fact, as you point out, that we do cheat in lots of areas, uh, but the big ones, death. Purpose of life, sex. Um, sex is a bad example, I suppose. We cheat there too. But um, these are areas where we have a lot of emotional, spiritual baggage. It's really hard for us, I think, to deal with them in any in the way we do with other stuff. Yeah, I, I don't think that the that the respect for authenticity is just something that religious people feel. You know, I think most people feel it. Um, it's the tricky part is figuring out where the line is. Uh, so it's true, God made us in a certain way, but we also feel that. God made me with very bad eyes, but I don't feel any compunction about right. glasses, right? So so there's some point, though, at which I, I would feel, no, I just have to accept this. Michael Sandel's written a good book, about, a very short book about this. Um, he was involved in bioethics in the Bush administration, had some studies uh, uh, related to things like cloning and so on. And he said, you know, the meaning of life is to accept the limitations of your life. That's, you know, if you, if you can't do that, then you're somehow, that's just not... It's not something that uh, that most people would respect as a way to approach life, and you know there must be some limitations and some contingencies that we feel it's okay to fix, and we want people you know not to suffer from them. And there are certain things that we feel for ourselves particularly that we don't uh, that we don't want to forego, even though 
it could be inconvenient or painful for us. And that's where what constitutes authenticity or autonomy is a matter for philosophy and literature and religion. It's not really a matter for science to tell us. Uh, it's a cultural question, and it varies as cultures vary. In uh, Sylvia Nasser's book on John Nash, The Beautiful Mind, uh, A Beautiful Mind, there's a point a couple times in the book where you know Nash refuses therapy, shock therapy, if I remember correctly, or his family refuses it for him it's, at other points because he had a certain um, – they and he had a certain respect for his brain, and they felt – this is sort of related to the natural part, but it's sort of not. It's sort of more practical, at least in theory. And they felt like he had he had such a it, he had a gift again, whether it's from God, whether they thought it was from God or just nat- natural results. That that he it would be wrong. It, it would be immoral for him to lead a more placid life if it meant cutting off some aspect of his creativity. And I think that is part of uh, what some people feel about you know these kind of pharmaceutical interventions, caffeine or or drinking or right, not just therapeutic stuff, but stuff we use in our daily lives. Um, people worry about what they'll do to their to what they see as a very a very precious thing. It's true. Now I would say just I think this is an important question though, because for example, there's been a lot of associations between depression and particularly bipolar disorder and creativity. But it's not altogether clear that people who have been medicated to deal with those disorders are less creative under medication. Um, they sometimes value particularly the manic part of bipolar disorder as sort of kind of part of who they are and what makes them able to do what they do. But they can't do it when they're manic. That's part of the problem. So it's not completely clear that we need to have these extreme mood states in order to be able to do all the things that we want to do. But nor is it clear that um, that if we were all to take... Uh, some kind of massive uh, antidepressant, we wouldn't all become sheep uh, and cut ourselves off from sometimes painful but fruitful uh, aspects of our lives. My guest today has been Louis Menand. Louis, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks a lot. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.